Amen. Praise the one who raises up, brings life from the dead. I don't know about you, but I need that. Some days I'm like, oh, I'm kind of dead today. <laughs> Not just energy-wise, but needing God's spirit to really like, be in us just to do life, because life is hard these days. Um, Although it was about a couple weeks ago, Dan and I were getting ready. Um, we're getting ready for the day, and then I got this like this notification on a news app that kind of came to my phone, and I was I, I checked it, and then I was really surprised. It was something kind of unanticipated. Um, some people might say undeserving. Something was happening, and I shared the good news with Dan. And it's after almost 20 years of faithfully paying our student loans every single month, our student loans were scheduled to be forgiven. What? <laughs> Yay! Yay! <laughs> now, regardless of whether or not you know what you think this is good policy or not, to be honest, this was not unwelcome news for me. Right? In order for me to go to college, all those years ago, we won't say when, I had to take a whole bunch of federal student loans. So many of them. I, I think I had something like five jobs, and I might be like under. Um, <laughs> underestimating how many jobs I had, and I worked really hard to get as many merit-awarded scholarships as I could, because that was the way I was able to go to college. I was actually the first person in my immediate family to be able to finish college. My parents wound up going kind of along the same time as me uh, via correspondence, so it's kind of cool. Like, um, I was very happy to be able to go, and yet, this past 20 years, I've had this thing that every single month I do. So when I got this notification the other day, it was welcome news. It was good news, and at the same time as this good news came all the scams, phone calls from people pretending to be part of the program, emails saying "click here," but really, they're all out to get your information or scam you in some sort of way. It's so bad. It got to the point where the other day I got an actual phone call from our loan servicing company, and I thought it was a scam. I actually had to like Google what number it was and look it up to be sure. Like, is this like who, who is this? Who is this? Because along with the welcome news came all the false news, the fake news, the scams. Now today is our second week going through the book of Galatians, and it's a letter that Paul,、um, who is an early church planter and pastor's pastor, he writes to a collection of churches that he helped start in the Roman province of Galatia. Now Paul had been faithful to share with them the good news, and last week Pastor Yumiko did a wonderful job bringing us right into the book and sharing with us Paul's understanding of the good news, which is this: the gospel is that Jesus Messiah. In his life, death, and resurrection, has inaugurated the new age, the kingdom of God on earth, the new era that the prophets foretold. This is the good news. The good news is that you and I can be in this now. You and I can be in Jesus Messiah, in His new life, in this new era of God, God's kingdom here on earth. Now, Paul he writes in a hurry and with a lot of heat. Because after he preaches this good news, right, this invitation to have faith in this Messiah who brings about God's kingdom, after he preaches the good news, along came the scammers. Here he is. He's just finished his introduction that Pastor Yumiko preached on last week, and he gets right into the text. He says, "Look, I'm shocked that you're so quickly abandoning the one who called you by abundant generosity in Christ for a different good news, which is not really a different good news." It's just that there are some who are unsettling you and want to twist the good news about Christ. However, 
Even if we ourselves or a heavenly angel should ever preach anything different from what we preach to you, they should be under a curse. I'm repeating what we said before. If anyone preaches anything different from what you received, they should be under a curse. Dang, Paul. Ooh, it's kind of, kind of hot, heated words. He's mad. If you were reading this in the Greek language, it would come across as like, damn these people, to hell with them. Like, this is not really how we talk about our enemies or talk to our enemies, is it? Paul's moved to such an extreme, authentic outpouring of his emotions. Remember, scripture can be prescriptive and descriptive, just an aside. It doesn't always tell us what to do. Sometimes it's just describing something that's happening. So in this case, probably not a good idea to call your enemies cursed. But in Paul's case... That's what he did. He's authentic. He's writing his letter by hand. He's really mad. And why is he so mad? It's because the good news he preached is being twisted by false teaching. And people in the churches are being harmed because of it. Because whenever there is false teaching, people get hurt. This isn't new news. The two things go together. I was a part of a religious stream growing up that had kind of poor teaching on parenting and raising children. And guess who was harmed by it? Children. And also the parents, because when, when those kids grow older, there are some things you got to work through that wouldn't be there had there been better teaching on parenting. Remember when the pandemic first came out, there was all this false teaching, you know, fake news on how to safeguard yourself. And who suffered? People. My parents' ministry in the Philippines, among their contacts and their, like the pastors they work with, over 40 people died of COVID when it first swept through the area. It's a lot of people. And then when there were more you know, resources, there's more knowledge on prevention and maybe treatment for this, then there became a preacher in the city near them that started telling everybody that if you're gonna get vaccinated, you were gonna die within two years, thus saith the Lord. So you know what that did? That created all this mistrust. People are scared of going to their doctor. They, they mistrust what their doctors are saying. They mistrust any medical advice because they heard this false news from a pastor. And who gets hurt? People do. They didn't go to their doctor. They're not listening to the best advice out there. False teaching, whatever it's about, whether it's about the end times, whether it's a prophet's take on your favorite politician, Maybe it's closer to home. Maybe it's poor teaching on marriage or mental health or divorce. Maybe the roles of men and women in the church. False teaching on whatever subject will always result in harm. And some harm is bigger and more obvious than others. Paul is so upset here. He's all riled up because this isn't like teaching on the best way to make hamburger. Right, the best way to cook a hamburger, if you get that wrong, not much is harm because it's kind of hard to ruin a hamburger. Paul's especially upset because this is false teaching related to our core shared beliefs of our hope in Christ. This is false teaching related to how we view the good news, how we understand the gospel of Jesus. So Paul's trying to write something before damage, more damage is done. Because for him, it wasn't even about the damage that was happening in that church, it was about that, it was bigger than that. It was about the whole future of how we view our hope in Christ. The whole future of how we understand the good news is at stake. So you might be wondering, well, what were these people teaching? 
You know, since we don't have copies about what they were sharing, we don't have any pamphlets or any flyers, we just get to reconstruct it from Paul's letter, from the arguments he puts out in his letter. And so what Bible scholars and commentators and people who study scripture can figure out, um, these people, and I'm not going to call them false teachers because Paul calls them fake siblings, um, but these people sort of infiltrated the community and they taught that Paul's gospel was incomplete. These false leaders, they came from some influential people in Jerusalem. Now, if you remember, Jerusalem is where the early church started, so there's some, there's some credibility there. And it was during a time of increased nationalism as a cultural movement, so they had the weight of this cultural movement behind them. These leaders were teaching that in order to be in Jesus' Messiah, you must accept Jewish law. So to be Messiah's people, they say, you need to be circumcised like us. That's why, as you read through Galatians 1 and 2, hopefully you're able to get to read through both of those this past week, as Pastor Yumiko uh, really encouraged us to. You'll see, this is why he's talking about circumcision left and right. He's like, I was with you, and they didn't compel Titus to get circumcised. Why is he talking like this? It's because these leaders are saying, in order to really be one of us, in order to really be in Jesus' Messiah, you need to follow Jewish law. And this bad teaching is creating harm. Because now whole groups of people in the church, all those who weren't circumcised, all those men who weren't, and all those people who had men in their family who weren't circumcised, they're now being treated as second-class citizens, like they didn't really belong. Although they're a part of the community, their pastors aren't eating with them anymore. Every single week when they sit down to take the Lord's Supper, the influential people are moving away from them, won't sit at the table with them. There's this um, gif, or jif, however you say it, from the movie Mean Girls that immediately came to mind for me. It's lunchtime in the school cafeteria, and one of the girls in the clique like, broke the rules, and she wore sweatpants. And so Gretchen tells her, she hisses at her, you can't sit with us. <laughs> you can't sit with us. That's exactly what was happening in these churches. I really, I even imagine them, poor Gretchen, I imagine them to look like her. You can't sit with us. You can't be here anymore. You don't really belong. The gospel didn't go far enough that he taught you. Now, up until now, all these different groups of people, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic standing, they had all shared in table fellowship together. And in the culture of the day, that was even more important uh, more symbolic than it is now. If you ate with someone, you couldn't fight them. You are saying to them, you are safe with me. I will share my resources with you. We are family. So for them to eat together and now suddenly pull away, it was creating even deeper of a wound. Because in order for them to really be in Messiah, there was another hoop they needed to jump through. Now, aside from the inconvenience and intrusion and the pain of surgery on a private body part, or the pain of ostracization if you have people in your family that are not circumcised. Beyond both of those things at stake, the underlying issue is this. Who belongs? Who belongs? For Paul and the people of his day, this wasn't a question primarily of who belongs in heaven, like who will be going to heaven when you die. Actually, in this whole book, the only mention of heaven is in the passage we just read. Like if an angel from heaven were to come preach to you a different gospel, let them be cursed. 
No, Paul isn't concerned about this community making the right moves so they can go to heaven when they die. This book is about who gets to be part of the community and God's kingdom here and now, which will include in the future. Who belongs now? And now in Paul's day, Gentile sympathizers would often attend synagogues in, in the places where they were at. And it was very mainstream Jewish thought that Gentiles who honored the true God alone and who avoided sexual morality would ultimately share in the world to come. So this isn't about participation. Oh, it's a hard word to say. This isn't about participating in God's world to come as much as it is who belongs now in this diverse community made up of Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, Romans, people who are free, people who are slaves, men, women, eunuchs, sexual minorities, high-ranking people in society alongside servant girls and children and widows and those who are poor, single people, married people, all kinds of people who belongs. And in every single community of faith, we face the same question, who gets to belong? Here in our community of Wellspring, who belongs? Some of you have been told, some of you in this room, some of you listening online, that you don't belong. That there's something you need to change about yourself first. This is what was happening to these churches in the province of Galatia. Maybe some of you have bought into ideas that are anti-gospel about who belongs. Because those false teachings, then as now, are everywhere. There's no shame, friends, in course correcting, in continuing to learn and grow and move with Jesus' spirit as Jesus reveals more truth to us. So in the remaining moments that we have together, I want us to look at the markers of this false news, this you know, fake gospel, so we can recognize it when we hear it, when we see it, as well as look at the corresponding markers of the gospel of Jesus Messiah. Because although false teaching persists, right, ever since the Garden of Eden, so does the life-altering, transformative goodness of God. And hopefully along the way, we'll also get to answer the question, who belongs? Does that sound okay to you? Okay, so it's with much, much hesitation and trepidation. I'm going to put my teaching hat on now because we're going to look at this text. I'm like, Paul, <laughs> I wish you hadn't pronounced a curse on all of uh, everybody who's teaching, but um, I feel very confident and secure uh, that what we're going to be looking at today uh, is God's truth for us in this moment now. So as we get ready to fill out the chart in your notes, um, I just want to say a quick aside, because depending what translation of scripture you're reading, you might have a question. If you're reading this during the week, past week, or this new week, you'll see the phrase, um, Jesus Christ, a lot. And some people think that Christ is like Jesus' last name. But it's not. It's not his last name. It's a translation of a Greek word meaning anointed one. And this word anointed one is one with huge, deep-running connotations throughout history for the Jewish people. In Hebrew, the, phrase, the word anointed one is the word Messiah. And this is what they were hoping for. This is what the prophets, especially Isaiah, were writing about. They were hoping that one day this anointed one, this Messiah would come, who would be representative of the people, who would be a leader of the people, who would come from God, who would deliver them, transform their trajectory, free them from their captors, bring a new era, a new age of God's kingdom to earth they would be justified. This is their longing, their hope. So the gospel, remember, if we can remember from Paul, is that Jesus Messiah, 
Jesus isn't just any old person. He is this Messiah fulfilling all these longstanding hopes. Through his life, death, and resurrection has inaugurated this new era in which we live. And through faith in him, we live in it too. For Paul, Messiah gathers us up so that what is true of Messiah is true of us. And we, in turn, make up his life on earth. So it's this interpenetrating vision. Messiah gathers us up, and then we are the body of Messiah on earth. It's a very sobering vision, too. Because if you're looking for Messiah, where is he? Here, in us. So moving, now we have that aside. If, you, if you're reading Jesus Christ, you can replace it with the word Messiah. It's the same word, just one from Hebrew, one from Greek. We can remember this is some of the hopes that they're longing for. But number one in your notes, if you're going through a chart, your chart looks like this in your notes. But I tell you, I'm really not good at PowerPoint. I couldn't find a way to make it not look cluttered. So this is what your notes look like, but this is what I'm going to give you. <laughs> I'm going to give you the lines, and you're just going to have to fill them in the right place. So here comes the first one. Number one, false teaching directs you away from the person and generosity of Jesus Messiah. So this is very first in your little chart. If you look at your chart, you'll see it's the very first one. False teaching directs you away from the person and generosity of Jesus Messiah, whereas the good news comes from and directs you to Jesus. Was that too confusing? Can you see that in your, little, in your charts? Is that okay? Okay. False teaching directs you away from the person and generosity of Jesus Messiah, whereas the good news comes from and directs you to Jesus. This is why in verse 6, for Paul, he says this, He's like, I'm shocked that you're so quickly abandoning the one who called you. He's not saying, I'm so shocked that you're so quickly, you know, um, going to a different religion. Or I'm so shocked they're quickly changing theology. For Paul, it's, I'm shocked that you are abandoning God. Because false gospel leads us away from God. The one who called you is God. It's not Paul. So Paul's saying this false gospel, this false news, this false teaching directs you away from God. Um, I came across this, uh, oh, this news a couple weeks ago, and I'm part of a couple of pastor groups online, and this one um, had really been challenged by some people in their congregation who went to a political rally and came back uh, with a book. And the book was the name of this political person, and it was their name, and they said, um, Son of God, the Christ. And apparently it wasn't a joke, but this whole book is why this political person is the son of God, the Christ, come back again. And they're like, have any of you seen it? And people are chiming in, yes, some of my congregants were sent this. Yes, some picked it up. I'm like, that is not God. That's leading you directly away from God. That is about as false teaching as you can get. It's not just then, but also now among us. So remember, the false teaching leads you away from God. But... The good news comes from Jesus, and it directs you to Jesus. So Paul, he says, where did he get his gospel? He says, the gospel I preach isn't human in origin, verse 11. I didn't receive it or learn it from a human. came through a revelation from Jesus Christ. So the good news comes from Jesus. And then as you read the rest of the chapter, which I won't read the whole thing of now, but you'll find out that Paul's way of life changed dramatically. We can see this in Galatians 1 and 2. He went from persecuting Christians to preaching the good news of Jesus. And he did this because of God's transformative power in him. And he said that when people learn about this, they gave praise to Jesus. So whenever we are in the good news, it results in praise being given to Jesus. Somehow, somewhere, sometime. 
So we got number one. Let's go ahead and move to number two in your notes. So we got it. False teaching directs you away from person and generosity of Jesus. Good news comes from and directs you to Jesus. So number two in your notes, in your little chart, false teaching looks spiritual at first, whereas the good news is confirmed by multiple kinds of witnesses. Number two in your chart, false teaching looks spiritual at first, whereas good news is confirmed by multiple kinds of witnesses. Right? Paul said, he's not just using hyperbole in verse 8. He's like, even if an angel from heaven were to preach you a different message, um, I don't think he's just using hyperbole because there have been plenty of people throughout the years that claim to have received a special message from an angel and they start like a cult or like really terrible theology stream of the faith. So false gospels, they look spiritual at first. It looks like there's some kind of divine revelation. It also looks spiritual because these people who came from Jerusalem that said, you know, in order to be in Messiah, you had to be circumcised. They were part of a, a very, um, taking kind of like a, a very non-people-pleasing, hard-line position. They're accusing Paul of this being part of a feel-good gospel. And so it looked spiritual for people that are really intense and they're like, I want to do this right. They might think, hey, maybe, maybe these teachers are right. You know, maybe this is too... Too, too easy. Maybe this is too loosey-goosey. You know, maybe by letting everybody in, you know, we're creating some problems. So it looked spiritual at first. The thing is, for Paul, the good news is confirmed by all kinds of witnesses, right? It's Cornelius in, in the church, in the book of Acts, who's a Roman centurion, who's a, who receives the Holy Spirit and is a witness to Jesus, alongside Rhoda, the servant girl in Jerusalem, who's able to share the good news. These people, they come from totally different walks of life, different genders, different um, people groups, different socioeconomic standings, and yet they're both confirming the witness of Jesus with them. For Paul, for himself, you know, he, he talks, if you read this, it sounds like he's on a long rant, which he kind of is, but he has a purpose to his rant. He's letting people know who he talked to, how he received the good news, you know, who, who he shared it with, with the apostles who were there living with Jesus, some of Jesus' own brothers, some of the, the sisters and the women that had come alongside Jesus in his ministry. He shared it with them. He received confirmation from them that he was on the right track. So there's accountability. They had the shared witness of the Spirit speaking through them together. So there's all these kinds of witnesses, different people from different walks of life, with, with people who've been there, who've seen, seen Jesus, confirmed by the presence of the Spirit. So these multiple kinds of witnesses with these different voices add to make a harmony. So when you are wondering, is this what I'm seeing on Facebook or this article that someone sent to me, is this the gospel? We can wonder, you know, does it look spiritual at first? How, what kind of witnesses are confirming this? Moving to number three in your chart. False teaching concerns itself with gatekeeping, particularly along ethnic, religious, and moral lines. False teaching is very concerned with gatekeeping, particularly along ethnic, religious, and moral lines, whereas the good news liberates. The good news liberates the community. The good news liberates the community from secondary markers of inclusion. I think I was reading a lot of commentary this week. This is pretty dense, but you're, you're good for it, right? You have your, like, list, you got your hats on, you're learning. So the first part, gate, gatekeeping. I think we know what that is. That's when people stand by the door and say, you can't come in here unless you're dressed differently. So, like, I don't do this anymore because I'm too, I'm, 
I'm not cool enough. But if I want to go to a cool club, I can imagine that the bouncer at the door would be like, first of all, where's your ID? Okay, you are definitely old enough. Next of all, not sure you're dressed the way you need to be dressed in here, so go back to the end of the line. <laughs> right, that's gatekeeping. Uh, not sure you can be in here. Not sure you're appro it's appropriate for you to be in here. Not sure we want you in here. That is like a perfect picture of gatekeeping. Whereas the good news says you don't have to have a secondary marker of inclusion. The only thing that matters is that you are in Messiah. What is true of Messiah is true of you. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the door. We don't have to stand at the door and police it. Jesus is the door. Jesus decides who comes in and out. We are free from having to do any gatekeeping at all. We are free from having to do any gatekeeping at all. Let's look at Galatians 2, verses 11 through 16. It's a picture of gatekeeping. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. No secondary markers of inclusion are needed. You don't need to have that ID. We're not going to judge you based on what you're wearing. Here we go. When Peter came to Antioch, I stood him up face to face. He was in the wrong. Before certain persons came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself because he was afraid of the circumcision people. The rest of the Jews did the same, joining him in this play acting. Even Barnabas was carried along by their sham. There's pain in that. He's like, even Barnabas. Barnabas is the loving guy who loves everybody. Even Barnabas is carried away. But when I saw they weren't acting straight down the line of gospel truth, I said to Peter in front of them all, look here, you're a Jew, but you've been living like a Gentile. How can you force Gentiles to become Jews? We are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, but we know that a person is not declared righteous by works of the Jewish law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus to the Messiah. That is why we too believed in the Messiah Jesus, so that we might be declared righteous on the basis of the Messiah's faithfulness and not on the basis of works of the Jewish law. On that basis, you see, no creature will be declared righteous. So a lot of really good theology there. The phrase you might notice again and again is the phrase righteous. That word righteous or made righteous. And this is the same word that can also be translated justified. Now to be justified was a hope that the people of Israel had carried for hundreds of years. Ever since the prophet Isaiah wrote, they were longing for God to justify them one day. Because they, they, they viewed justification like this. If you or your community is justified by God, that means you're right with God. You're declared righteous. You have a righteous status, defines your identity, and then God works on your behalf to make things right for you. So you can imagine for a people group that had been ripped from their homes, that experienced war, violence, and disruption, who had been spread aside to many different cities, you can see why they hope for God to justify them one day. And along the way, some believe that to be justified, you really had to lean into Old Testament law because that's all they had. This is why gatekeeping enters the picture. You can understand why, right? It's because they are trying to avoid more pain, more disruption for their community. I have empathy for gatekeepers, even though they're not right. False teaching is always concerned with gatekeeping particularly along lines that are ethnic, that are religious, that are moral, as circumcision was all three. False teaching is about gatekeeping that wants to create and specify other identities you need to belong to to be part of the group. 
It's easy to read Galatians, I think, you know, just in our 21st century lens, and we're like, well, great, you know, we don't deal with the circumcision problem anymore. But the thing is, we deal with the same questions. What other identities do I need to have to be part of this group? Do I need to be married? Do I need to be single? Do I need to be on my first marriage? Do I need to be a member of a specific political party? Do I need to be heterosexual? Do I need to be a certain size or ability or be part of a certain income bracket? Friends, the good news frees us from all this gatekeeping. Frees us from this gatekeeping. Because the good news of Jesus, the door, liberates and invites, creates hospitality. If you're concerned about being justified, about God doing right on your behalf, declaring us all good, that's what the faithfulness of Jesus has done on the cross. The faithfulness of Jesus justifies us, which is why we don't have to declare who's in and out. Jesus decides. Jesus decides. Can you imagine inviting someone to a birthday party? They get all dressed up. They find a sitter for their family member or their pet. Then when they get to the front door, you're like, oh, you can't come in. We forgot to tell you that you have to be wearing a costume. You have to do, arrange your hair a certain way. So that would be a secondary marker of inclusion. The good news says that Jesus has done it. It is finished. And because of Jesus' work on the cross, what is true of him is true of you. To those of you who put your faith in Jesus, he has done it. We do not need to satisfy the works of the law. God's life is your life. Because of Jesus, you are all good. Can we say thanks be to God? Thanks be to God. I mean, this is so amazing, so good, so weighty. This is great. I didn't know Galatians was quite this awesome when I started looking at it this week. <laughs> Number four in your chart. False teaching twists non-essentials into essentials. Whereas the good news empowers with God's own life. False teaching twists non-essentials and makes them essential. Like you have to do it this way. Whereas the good news empowers with God's own life. Now, if um, number three that we looked at in the chart just now is about who's in and who's out, right? Who's in the gate, who's outside of the gate. Number four is about how you can tell who's in and out. Now, the Old Testament Hebrew people, they were called by God to live a certain way, right? The law and the prophets gave them specific markers of community. These are ways of living in the world that would mark them to be the people of God, that would set them apart from other, other countries. And these markers of their identity included like what they ate, how they treated the poor, how they stayed away from idols and worshiped the one true God, how they were connected and tied to this God in a way that was deeply personal in the sort of sacramental rite of circumcision. So these markers set them aside as a people. They set them aside as a people who would be justified who would inherit the promises of God, the new era God was bringing in. Now, their identity had been threatened time and time again. Like before the time of Jesus, actually not that too long before the time of Jesus, was the time of Alexander the Great. And they were Greek occupiers, very violent ones in Jewish land. And they were forcing Jews to become like Greeks, to eat pig meat, forcing them, you know, on pain of death, eat pig meat, sacrifice to idols. They were killing those who, weren't, who were circumcised, persecuting those who kept the Sabbath. It was really a time of terror. Like one of them even like tried to set up a sacrifice in the temple of a pig. It was a horrible time. 
So at that time, Jewish radical groups like the Maccabees rose up. For them, these markers of community were essential. They were tied to their future deliverance as a people, so they didn't want to let them go. So the Maccabees, they were like the, the radical answer to Alexander the Great. They would go around and they would literally force people to get circumcised. Like a mom would be holding a baby and they'd like circumcise the baby right there. They're like, the Greeks don't want you to do this, so we are going to do it because we are not going to let them win. The thing is, though, now that Jesus has come as Messiah, who ushers in the new age, this new way of being with God, the markers of this are not the outward markers that mark a body. What marks our community? Right? These are, how do you know you're part of this community? Not what do you have to do to belong, but how do you know you're part of it? Some family members, they look kind of similar. You're like, oh, you're definitely part of that family. Or some parts of the world, you might have a specific accent. Oh, I can tell you're from the Midwest. You know, by the way, you say bagel. I can't do it anymore, but I used to. Like, we have different markers that kind of show us to be in different families. And it used to be that you had these specific laws that would mark you to be in this family. But now Paul is saying the only marker we have is life in Christ, and now we are filled with the Spirit. We are empowered by Christ's own life to live with the Spirit. This is our new marker. It's not a physical one. It's not even one that you have to do, because when you trust in Jesus Messiah, it's given to you. You see that? It liberates, it empowers. The good news results in spirit-filled living. Which brings us back to the question, who belongs? Who belongs? I think if we were to go around the room, we would probably have a lot of different stories of maybe not getting a seat at the table. I'm a, I'm a person with a lot of different privileges. You know, I don't have huge stories about this, but there are a few that stand out to me that, you know, that are painful even now to remember. I remember sitting by myself in fifth grade on the school bus. Uh, the other kids in the neighborhood didn't want to sit with me. They told me I was too poor for them to sit with. Because that day in school was the first day of band, and I was the only fifth grader whose parents didn't have enough money to rent an instrument for them which meant I didn't go to band. So they didn't want to sit with me because I was too poor. I remember going home and crying. As an adult, I remember not being invited to professional meetings, even though I was on pastoral leadership at our church, because I was a woman. That hurt. Whatever your story is of not belonging, some of them go very deep. It hurts when people draw the lines of inclusion and leave you out. It might even be a life-altering wound that you feel. And friends, in the words of Paul, Galatians 2, God plays no favorites. There are no second-class citizens here in the new community of Jesus Messiah. There is space for you to belong. In this era, all who trust in Jesus Messiah can come to the table. There's no secondary thing you need to do to jump through a hoop so you can belong. This is a taboo-breaking, border-crossing life flowing through us in our radical community. 
started by Jesus himself, who ate and drank with sinners at the table and invited all to come, who didn't even tell Judas to step outside when he began communion, right? During the very first institution of communion, which we're going to celebrate in a few minutes here, even Judas was at the table. Jesus didn't say, Judas, you're about to do something terrible. You're about to betray me. You don't get to be part of this group. No, even Judas sat at the table. Friends, the good news for us is that you belong. Through trust in Jesus, Messiah, your home is here. There is space at the table for you. We no longer serve old laws, old principles, old powers. But the power of God in Jesus has won out. This means nothing you have done. No identity marker you have, one you can change or maybe one you can't change, can keep you from becoming part of God's new creation, from being part of the Jesus Messiah body. This means that you and I are empowered to leave gatekeeping, leave gatekeeping behind, embrace the faithfulness of Christ, who makes all things new. Right? When Jesus declares, let there be light, when, when God declares, let there be light at the very beginning of creation, God declares it and makes it so with his declaration. And when we are declared righteous through the faithfulness of Christ, it becomes true of us because God has the power to declare something and make it so in his declaration. We can allow ourselves to be embraced by God who makes all things new and invites us to the table Jesus has set. Now, in a few moments, Pastor Cheryl will come up. A few moments, she'll come up, and we're going to celebrate the generosity of God. We're going to celebrate us belonging. Celebrate you belonging, whoever you are, whatever you've done. We're going to celebrate at this table that's marked by God's generousness, by God's generous nature, by God's goodness. Now, this table is also a table where we see that harm has been done. Harm may have been done to us by people who said, you're out. And Jesus experiences all that pain in his wounds on the cross. Jesus knows what it is like to be ashamed, to be taken out of the city, cast out of the city, to be stripped naked and hung on a tree so that he might be the tree of life for all of us, bidding us all come to the table. Jesus will eat with anybody. So you are all welcome. As we transition to a time of communion, I want you to turn to somebody, uh, let's turn to somebody on your right. I want you to say, there is room for you. Okay, whatever side you turn to, it's all good. Can you all turn to the other side? I'm a little confused. I'm like, which way is your right? <laughs> let's turn the other way. And I want you to say, Jesus invites you to the table. Well, that's great. Okay, let's say it really loud now then for our friends who are at home. Can we all turn around? Let's look at the screen and let's say the first one, there is room for you. Ready, go. There is room for you. And the second one, Jesus invites you to the table. I want to leave you with these words from Paul. He says, I died to the law. <laughs> yeah. There's plenty of room. Yes, exactly. Yes, Paul's like, you know what? I died to the law so I could live for God. I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in my body, I live by faith. Indeed, by the faithfulness of God's son, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a table of love, a table of welcome, 
a table of inclusion, you belong. Amen.